Welcome to episode 23 of Sassmouth Dames podcast. What's your favorite Cirque picture that Douglas Cirque did not actually make? For me, it's One Desire from 1955, starring Ann Baxter and Rock Hudson. Although it's directed by Jerry Hopper, it looks and feels just like a Cirque picture. It shares the same patina of saturated technicolor used to highlight a multi-layered critique of American values where the sexual double standard runs as deep as the Grand Canyon. One of the most durable plot lines in woman's pictures starts with a woman looking for a fresh start. Many of Douglas Sirk's best films from the 1950s centered on women who were trying to start over. When the men died or failed them, as was the case for Jane Wyman in All That Heaven Allows, or Lana Turner and Juanita Moore in Imitation of Life, women pulled up their cardigan sleeves and set to work. Or if they decided they wanted to switch their choices away from a career and back to men in the family, as with Barbara Stanwyck in both Cirque's All I Desire and There's Always Tomorrow, the message prioritizes a woman seeking happiness and self-fulfillment. It's her prerogative to start over. Alone together in her private room, Anne Baxter, wearing a merry widow with a black lace dressing gown, throws her head back and laughs as Rock Hudson calls her a witch. They kiss. If you are a connoisseur of women's pictures, this one will hook you within five minutes. Anne Baxter radiates desire for the man in the truest midnight blue suit who stands in her boudoir. Together, they are pure sexual appetite without pause or shame. In a later scene, he calls her a whole lot of woman, and viewers know he means it. When Ann Baxter says she wants to live in the daylight for a change, the film emphasizes perceptions that shape women's reputations and social standing. She's tired of being a madam in a brothel and a gambling den called the White Palace, set in Oklahoma during the 19th century. She puts manners on the working girls who set their eyes on Rock Hudson, the best-looking croupier, and certainly the rooster in the hen house. Baxter's character, Tacey, decides to quit the business and keep house for Rock when he declares he's going to try his luck in a town in Colorado. His younger brother, a boy of about 10, shows up, which gives Tacey an instant claim to be needed. Rock says that the cards seem to be stacked in his favor and wants to know what she gets out of the bargain. Tacey replies, I got a yen to wear clothes that don't scream at you. In woman's pictures, wardrobe sews up characterization. We see Ann Baxter pack away spangled red gowns and feather boas for somber tailoring and quiet palettes. Nothing said sex worker louder than a feather boa in a film set in the Old West. Costumes designed by Edith Head, she always scrutinized her designs for historical accuracy. The clothes become instantly serious and heavy once she leaves the brothel. If you want to start over, the first area of attack is always the wardrobe. The minute they step off the train in Colorado, Rock selects a pretty, well-dressed woman from the crowd and turns on the charm. Rock, a tall drink of man water, a swoon merchant named Clint Saunders, asks Julie Adams, who plays Judith, to recommend a hotel in town. She's obviously rich from her clothes, all heavy upholstery. 
Everything is covered from her neck down for a so-called proper lady, and the only feathers in sight are reserved for her hats. His flirt maneuvers are dead obvious to Tacy. She watches him, amused. She plays with the double standards that give him total freedom and remain unavailable for women who live in the glare of moral daylight. Tacy teases him. She asks if she can go up to the most important-looking man, the best-looking man in town, and ask him to recommend a hotel room. Clint doesn't really take criticism to heart because he doesn't have to. Tacy would have been arrested had she attempted that with a strange man. He's not connecting the dots that what's good for him is off-limits to her. She says, not a two-way street, huh? It won't be the last time that Clint ditches her for Judith. He has a knack for compartmentalizing. Tacy is part of his private life, and Judith occupies his attention in public. All of his ambition directs itself to the world outside. Home is for food and comfort and sex, and it's easily taken for granted. Clint bridles about no commitments, warning her that he's not about to make any promises. When they find a home and Tacy tells him he can drop by but must leave for a 10 p.m. curfew so that she can maintain respectability, he looks around and notes that women sure have strange ideas of pleasure. She wants a home of her own, something that's not on his radar. It goes without saying he'll be the king in some castle eventually when he gets around to it. Once she's installed in the house, her wardrobe palette fades from crimson to pale celery muted in high collars and ruffle front dresses. Tacy buries herself in making a home and mothering Clint's brother, unfortunately named Nugget, played by Barry Curtis. Learning how to cook can be a pleasure, but perhaps less so when the man you're doing it for leaves to call on another woman. Neither prude nor shrew, Tacy swells with frustration at the role she's being forced to accept. Clint doesn't want to see her unhappiness. He's too busy trying to impress the rich gal. The sweep of Clint's hair when he meets Judith in the bank is pure coxcomb. His hair is so lush and thick, it's a wonder she didn't take her gloves off and stick her hands in it. Inside the bank, Rock realizes that Judith's father is the bank president. When he approaches, viewers have little doubt that he'll win her over. His voice is so deep and yet entirely soft at the same time. Listening to Rock Hudson is like easing into a hot bath. He's wearing a conservative brown suit, but underneath a brocade waistcoat with a metallic sheen to it promises a hint of flashiness. Just a hint, but it suggests that he knows a good time and isn't a stuffed shirt. Judith apologizes for the refurbishment and progress and for the slow service. He tells her that the business could indeed improve. He boasts, it takes a certain talent to handle money. You might even call it an art. The bank teller struggles serving a customer, a man who complains. Behind the bars, the teller snaps that he should try working in the monkey cage for a while and then quits on the spot. Judith turns to Clint and lays out the challenge for him to settle their problem. With a long queue of grumbling customers, Rock does indeed offer to sort out the problem and escorts her with him behind the counter. He looks good handling money, and Judith swoons. But really, he could have been plunging a toilet and he would still make your knees buckle. He stacks coins, identifies a counterfeit, shuffles checks and tallies sums with as much prowess and flair as a sculptor with a hunk of stone.
Where the clerk had been clumsy, Clint is dexterous. You can see Judith wonder what else those hands might be good for. His flirt game is strong. Back in the Clappard house, Tacey keeps her own counsel, trying not to nag him about Judith, but he does make it difficult. He tells her, I'll buy you a new hat, something all fluttery like the one Judith was wearing. Tacey is in the middle of fixing his lunch. Tacey repeats the woman's name, Judith. In her rickrack trimmed neckline, as wholesome as a pie crust, she reaches behind the curtains of the kitchen window and grabs a bottle. It's probably rose water, and she dabs some behind her ears and between her breasts. She could not have made her insecurity more palpable had she taken out a mirror or applied some lipstick. Tacy's reach for scent was an automatic response to competition, which she never had in the White Palace. There, all she had to do was assert her soul rights as the madam to warn a girl off. Rock reassures her that she doesn't have to worry because Judith is too skinny. Buddy, that line was no more convincing in the 1850s, 1950s than it is today. No woman wants to be fashioned in another's image, especially when she's currently sharing her bed, at least until the 10 o'clock curfew. Their household expands with another child. Natalie Wood was 17 years old when she played Celie, but she looks about 14 when we first meet her. She's motherless, a neighbor tells Tacy, and therefore wild. Knock knees in torn stockings and shabby clothing. Clint's brother calls her dirty. Tacy snaps, look who's talking, at another double standard. When Celie's father dies in a mine explosion, she joins the makeshift family. Clint works at the bank. Tacy keeps house and raises the children. Domestic scenes of Clint playing the piano, the children reading, and Tacy cutting out strips of fabric for valances over the curtains would be utterly saccharine if not for the fact that they were so hard won. This setup probably would have continued indefinitely were it not for Judith's one desire for Clint. She interferes with the makeshift family. By way of explanation, she says, if I can't have something that's all my own, I just don't want it. So she hires a private detective to investigate Tacy's past. It doesn't take long to learn about the six years she spent working in the White Palace and that she was part owner. Judith raises her concerns about the children's welfare with a local judge. She's doomed. For women like Judith, all they have is their reputation. As a lady, she will force any woman to the branding iron for the quickest dispatch. Clint doesn't know about the courtroom proceedings. Summoned to the courthouse, Tacy has no recourse. On display in a room full of po-faced scolds, she bears their judgment. It's excruciating to watch her try to justify having worked in a brothel to survive as a teenager. She tries to stand up to her accusers, yelling that she gave two children a home when nobody else would, that she scrubbed for them and loved them, but her hard work is ignored when the revelations about her past greet the light of day. She declares that she's as much of a mother to Celia Nugget as any woman in the room is to theirs. The judge decrees the children be removed from her home. He uses the cruel logic that since she never legally adopted them, they were never really hers. Pitiless, the law has the sole authority to decide which families are real. 
Tacey implores the court, look at me, I'm new, scrubbed clean. She looks every inch the lady, but mercy is not forthcoming. The judge and ladies in attendance value appearances and labels over what's best for the children, and they don't care that the children love Tacey and want to stay with her. Judith saunters into the courtroom and, in a magnanimous pose, tells the judge that she will take the children into her home. Viewers know as soon as they see Judith that she will be appointed the legal guardian because she looks like a victor. She wears a navy hat with an enormous yellow plume. It looks like something Lafayette would have worn to chase the redcoats across a river. Judith is imperious and pretends to rescue the children. With a tear-stained face, Tacy begins to connect the dots. She stops crying and sees the writing on the wall. Under a crumpled hat, something as flat and pathetic as the one she wore as plaintive Eve Harrington, Ann Baxter realizes out loud that Judith wants the kids so she can have Clint to herself. She bids farewell to the children, picks up, and leaves town. She tells them, I'm leaving him to himself because ultimately he's responsible for her exile since he cast his lot with the town's ruling class. Unwilling to endure public censure, she returns to to the White Palace. Once she's in her sex worker clothes, Tacy looks liberated. Out of heavy fabric, corset, buttons, ruffles, she looks like she can breathe again. That may not be the intended message of the film, but it's nonetheless the case. In a green satin gown with thin straps, a a plunging neckline, and blue opera gloves with an ostrich feather boa to match, she appears confident and one of a kind. Judith and all the lady attire seems like overstuffed furniture in the drawing room. She bides her time to think about what happened. Tacy instructs her partner in the White Palace to say she's not there if Clint comes around. To his credit, Clint does search for Tacy, at least a little, but soon gives in and marries Judith. Tacy is no Medea. She doesn't exact her revenge on the children. Instead, she waits and then takes direct aim on the newlyweds. More importantly, she hadn't planned to take revenge at all. Not until Judith walks in when she stops for the night in the town and demands to know why Tacy is there does she revise her plans. It was inevitable that the two women would have a confrontation. Now that she's the missus, it's Judith's turn to become jealous and fearful of losing him. She accuses Tacy of sneaking back to see Clint and assumes she's already done so on multiple occasions. I drove you out once and I can do it again, she threatens. Finally, Tacy realizes who sent the letter about the White Palace. Judith tries to hi-hat Tacy and tells her to leave town. In a moribund, crimson-trimmed ensemble, Judith is dressed to look important and serious. She looks severe and joyless. She also looks like fangs might pop out of her mouth and tear at Tacy's throat. Their dust-up has the opposite effect than Judith intended. Rather than slink away in the morning, Tacy digs her heels in. Tacy wasn't completely adrift in the world when she left Ransburg. She was once part owner in the White Palace. She saved her money. Now she can put it to good use and finance her scorned woman campaign. Tacy protests a society that allows men all the advantage of social mobility and none to women. 
Clint can go from working at a card table to marrying a senator's daughter. Respectability is something women can only be born to, but men can put it on as easily as a new tie. What better way to shove their noses in the double standards about sexual exclusivity for women while men carry on their own desires than to open a brothel across the road? While the newlyweds occupy a lavish home with a sterling address, Tacey invests her savings into constructing the Pink Palace, which looks right inside the proper family home. The sign for the Pink Palace might as well read the Pussy Palace. It's Cat House Pink. Mrs. Odell, played by the outstanding character actress Betty Gard, is a local woman who befriends Tacey. She lacks any social standing as a deserted woman, but she cautions the new business owner. It's not exactly hubris at the level of Greek tragedy, but she warns about the proximity to Clint and his new wife as being a bit mean-spirited. Clint shows up and attempts to browbeat Tacey with the authority of his new address in marriage. Tiny Ann Baxter squares her shoulders to all six foot five of Rock Hudson's masculine bulk. Now she wears the hat of a victor, a black and orange plumed affair that looks bolder than Judith's Lafayette version. She has nothing to lose. Tacey tells Clint, maybe I found out I'm as good as most people and a whole lot better than some, including your wife. Respectability and a good reputation from marriage might not be as certain as he once thought. Suddenly, Clint doesn't look as cocksure as he once did. One thing that makes one desire a real standout during an era that affirmed traditional gender roles and morality is that the scarlet woman ultimately receives her heart's desire. By contrast, the woman coded good and proper faces punishment for her misdeeds. It turns out, the picture tells viewers, that women can start over and they can shed their past. You can watch One Desire at that Russian website I'm always talking about. You can also find a link to stream it at um, ffilms.org slash one-desire-1955. I'll close the episode with an excerpt from Ann Baxter's fascinating memoir that contains a gold standard prose style. Baxter's book is one of the best from women in old Hollywood. It's about when she left her acting career to start over in the Australian outback with her second husband. Grab a copy if you can. The picnic spot was beside a smooth flow of river curtained with willows and bottle brush. Lunch was laid out in small piles on flat rocks. Shall we have roast duck, said Ran. Marvelous idea, I burbled. Not really tuned in. Fine. Want to pluck it? I blanched as he proffered me the damp bundle. All I could see was a tiny, lolling head and sleepy eyes. Are you squeamish? Would you rather not, he said, concerned. No, 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 happy to do it, I assured him. A dissonant chord played me sharply. The body was still warm. Its feathers were starting to dry in sticky points. Cradling it in frozen nonchalance, I sauntered stiffly to the riverbank, ostensibly to dispose of the feathers, but actually to hide. I opened my hands to look. The complicated beauty of its coloring stunned me. Feeling numb, I ripped and jerked the feathers, which fell in soundless tufts on the pulpy bank. I pulled every single one, dreadfully nauseated, but like the would-be surgeon, I could scarcely faint at first blood. The bird was naked now, skinny and pocked, dead as any murdered corpse, and so was I. 
I brought it back to be trussed on a stick and cooked above the crackling fire. In minutes, it was charred to a grimy kink, and I felt years older and very tired. Rand said it tasted fishy from the river. You are what you are. It's all a matter of emphasis, I suppose. Damn my highly colored viewpoints anyway. The fact that they were highly colored was an irrevocable personal fact, with which I was never able to deal with in Australia. Nor was exasperated Ran. He thought I wasted precious emotions. For me, they were the essential tools of my profession and always at hand. He used his emotions as a last resort, like dipping into capital. The fourth morning, I awoke to superb chorus. It had rained in the night, and always, if they were around, the magpies deny their shrewish name and sing about it. Never have I heard anything like those pure intermingled chords, minikin pipe organs playing natural cantatas. Hearing is believing that delectable music. I didn't know then that they wreaked havoc in the corn, but I'd have forgiven them anything and planted fields of it to ensure their golden throats after rain. The sheep were still mired in their oozing tennis court, and Rand called me to come and see a newborn lamb tremulously finding its toothpick legs. We clung to the high fence and watched. The rags of afterbirth were still in evidence, and the ewe stood quietly staring into space through her companions. The lamb gathered its legs together and moved forward like a mechanical toy improperly wound. It's trying to find her milk, Rand explained. The lamb rocked uncertainly and stumbled towards its mother's flank. As it lifted its searching head, almost within reach of her teats, the ewe turned sharply, leaving the befuddled creature facing not a first breakfast, but Mama's dark eye. Again the lamb made a heroic effort to reach the bag. Again the ewe wheeled it to avoid. In quick anger, I pulled Rand's sleeve, saying, What's the matter with her, Rand? Why doesn't she help it? I don't know, dearest, he said. Sometimes they're bad mothers. One reason I hate sheep. She'd done it again. But can't we do something, I implored? This thing will starve to death if it keeps up. Don't worry, I'll keep an eye on it. And if things aren't better tonight, we'll take it out and feed it by hand. I looked back, partially reassured, but confused by a newfound flaw in nature. It grew cold and it rained again. Ran loomed up the veranda at about four o'clock, looking so elegant I was speechless with admiration. A thick white sweater, beaten jeans shoved into knee-high heavily oiled boots, a flat wide-brimmed digger hat, and draped over all of him, like Napoleon's cape, a drysabone, or Australian stockman's raincoat. It was stiff and oily and had a generous collar ending in a shoulder cape. The rest fell in folds to the ground. A glowing cigar completed the ravishing sight. How about a walk up the strip, he grinned. And at that moment, I would have said yes to anything he suggested, certainly a walk. I'll grab a sweater, I answered, smiling foolishly, glad he didn't know what I was thinking. We strode through the thick wet grass up to the strip for the first of many such strolls. They made me feel as if I'd just quenched my thirst. As we came back, we saw the sheep being driven into their mud prison, and Rand's expression cooled. They had trouble getting through the narrow gate, pushing and shoving in heavy breathing excitement. I looked eagerly for our little lamb, but he was nowhere to be seen in the crush. 
Rand scanned the flock and looked increasingly stern. Where do you suppose it is, I said with worried expression. I'm not sure. Sometimes they trample the young ones getting in, he said, avoiding my face. Oh, God, I whispered. With that, the last dirty gray bottom forced itself through to the court, and there it was, a twitching, broken toy. I shook and stared. Ran dashed to the house, plowed into the veranda, and was back as I listened to his steps. He had a rifle on his arm. Out of the corner of my eyes, I saw it rise. The broken toy leapt once more, two times, three times, as the bullet struck it. It jerked once more and was still. Tears ran down my face as I turned to hide them, ashamed to feel so much. Ran trudged back to the house ahead of me. I never wept again at anything like that. Avoid it, I did. He said I'd made it harder for him. Clearly, I was wrong and he was right. What I felt was my affair. Showing him what I felt became his affair, and somehow that was wrong. I'd have to learn to lock a Pandora's box of powerful emotions. That would prune me harder than the lack of luxury any day. Maybe I could learn his mother's attitude. Life is a new game. But wasn't Giro awfully big for a game? And I was lousy at games. The idea of having to edit my emotions cowed me. But that was what I began to do. I began to shut up. Is there always a moment in love between a man and a woman when one or the other starts to omit important reactions? Catholics have the sin of omission. They are correct. I don't mean the little white lies that protect. I was mortally afraid of some of the emotions in that Pandora's box. There were infantile tantrums in there. Suicidal depressions infested it. Violence and craven fear bulged in its corners. But it was also rich with sexual passion and a skinless actress. The raw spectrum of myself, dead end kids at all. An explosion in that box could bring down the house. I cleaned up some of my dead end kids for him to meet. He had a few of his own. But that day turned the key on mine, which I pocketed deep. If I dared to trot out an emotion now, it had better be edited and rehearsed. Otherwise, I might lose him. And that was more frightening than what hid in my Pandora's box. I neglected to face the fact that my work had provided vital airings for the explosives inside. Acting had been healthy catharsis my entire life. Never having been denied it, I took it for granted. Every aspect of Giro spelled openness. Our drawing together spelled love, not constriction. It never occurred to me that behind the word edit hid the word amputate. Thanks very much for sticking with me and listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, um, please have a thought about going to iTunes and leaving a review. Help a dame out. Thanks for listening again. Join me next time when I discuss Pola Negri in Vili Force Mazurka from 1935. Thanks very much. I got an island in the Pacific, and everything about it is terrific. I got the sun to 